All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for imparting said truth to our souls. Thank you for giving us time to dwell on it. Thank you for your patience in doing so. Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy, and most of all, your love, your unerring love. We are so faithless at times, but you're so faithful each and every morning, Father. Thank you for reminding us of these things. Thank you for encouraging us with these things as we gather ourselves into a new year. We pray for those that can't be with us, Father, and we pray for those that are still lost. We are mostly and most thankful for your son's work on the cross, our Lord and Savior's sacrifice, to make even an evening like this a reality for us, that we never become familiar with it. Father, we just pray for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the deceitfulness of sin, part 11. I do hope you had a good, safe New Year celebration, if at all. I uh, sometimes think about certain holidays as almost arbitrary. I mean, what? seriously, what's so special about January 1st? I know, I'm such a party pooper, right? First Christmas, now New Year's. <laughs> I just think that... Um, I don't know. It just seems arbitrary to me. I mean, we could have. What, what, who's to say we couldn't have just called it March first? No, for real. Same. In any case, since you seem disinterested, <laughs> these are the deep thoughts I have. <laughs> Given our attention to the new year, the spirit wanted to inject a little perspective for starters. From Tuesday's message, <clears throat> let's just get right into it. This is what I heard. No pity parties. Let's be done with it. Let's, if we're going to gather ourselves into a new year, let's be done with the pity parties. Right? I mean, it's a good place to start. Um, may we never suggest that the Lord isn't with us and doesn't give grace to the humble. James 4, 6. And I was thinking about it this way. <clears throat> Even his so-called unanswered prayers include a divine answer. Some of you look back on, you know, 2018 and say, geez, what a, you know, I don't know, humdrum, if that's a word, year. What a lackluster year uh, it was. You know, it kind of was stagnant or it wasn't a whole lot of highlights, a lot of lowlights maybe, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I prayed my tail off and nothing really happened. And that's really God answering you, saying, I don't want anything to happen. Remember the guys that took a long time for me to develop? Remember Paul? Remember Moses? Remember Abraham? I didn't just throw these guys into the wolves. I mean, I, I, I nurtured these guys. I nurtured these people. There were long plateaus in their lives where we read nothing about, and they're just living life. Um, so a lot of times... We pray and we wonder why our prayers go unanswered and we get in that sort of pity potty mode, you know, why, you know, why is my life stagnant and I've got a five-year plan, Lord, don't you know? Um, and his answer is divine in saying no. Just food for thought. Some of us have a bad habit of murmuring towards God because we don't get what we want. And it's really terribly arrogant. We didn't get what we wanted, you know. Um, true humility says what the Lord said. God's will be done. Thy will be done. That's what true humility looks like. If you didn't want it from me last year and you still don't want it from me this year, then so be it. You must have something better for me in store. And I just don't know it. And I just have to have faith in it. But nonetheless, we murmur in our arrogance. But true humility says God's will be done. Again, this is Jesus' own sentiments on carrying or while carrying his cross. Go to Luke 14, 27. Luke 14, 27. And so no pity parties, you know. I mean, we all sort of 
get fussy once in a while, but it's really no way to live. Luke fourteen twenty seven. <clears throat> Jesus said when he had to carry his cross, when he was facing his cross, which included death by crucifixion, and then separation from his father, which was completely undeserved, when he was facing all that, he had a joy set before him. What did he say to us? Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I've shown you what this path looks like. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You must be willing to carry your cross, my friends. And to some degree, if you're a true believer, you always will. But you can either carry it with proper form, humming the tune, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Or you can lapse into the deceitfulness of sin and complain about the good labor the Lord intends for you. The prior results in blessing, the latter cursing. The prior is evidence of being mastered by the Lord, while the latter is evidence of sin's mastership influencing you experientially. We noted Paul's words regarding mastership last time. Go to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. I love this. I can, I can just imagine Paul knowing what, let's face it, we don't know that much about his personality, but what we do know, um, I can just sort of imagine him saying this because he's kind of a scrappy little man. 1 Corinthians 6.12 All things are lawful. What did I say? I said 1 Corinthians, right? Okay. 1 Corinthians 6.12 all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. In other words, I have the right to do pretty much whatever I want, but it's not always profitable. I've got a mission here. I'm trying to save some souls. Um, so it's not always profitable for me to do this or that, even though I have every liberty to do it. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. Contrary to Paul was Ananias and his wife Sapphira, who were mastered by sin, even called out as being filled by Satan, lying to the Holy Spirit. That's what we noted in Acts 5, if you recall. And if we look at that situation with Ananias and his wife, um, you see that sin had clutched them sort of had him in its clutch, its clutches, if you would, because that's its nature. Remember, that's what Teshuka is. That's what sin wants to do. That's what we've been learning about the deceitfulness of sin. It'll say it's not doing that while it's doing that. It will lull you on, it, on your back. It will lull you into a position of uh, submission. It will lull you away from submission to the Lord to submission to sin itself. That's its nature. And it'll do so with a smile on its face, keeping you thinking there's nothing wrong. Nonetheless, sin had clutched Ananias and Sapphira because that's its nature. And like Adam in the garden when asked, where are you after the fall? Ananias wasn't concerned with offending God, but with his own discomfort and dissatisfaction. I don't want to give up every piece of the sale of my land for personal reasons, even though I promised to do so. Uh, that's sort of a focal point on self rather than on God. We noticed that pattern way back in the garden after the fall. Adam was focused on self, not on the fact that he was dishonoring God, that he disobeyed God. Same pattern. Same sin nature, in other words. So back then, we see, immediately see the effects of the influence of sin, something we can all learn from when it occurs in our own lives. 
up here on the board, the influence of sin. And this is an introspective type principle. If you've turned inward, focusing on self, goals, aspirations, desires, relationships, etc., then sin has gained on you. In other words, you know what I'm saying? If your focus is outside of yourself, Christ, others, outside. You esteem others even more important than yourselves, as the Word of God says. If that's going on in your life, you're in good shape. But if it sort of, you know, buckles in on yourself, or you know, all, all your vision is refracted, if you would, into yourself, and all you can see is yourself, and all you're focusing on is yourself, sin's gripped you. It's deceived you into thinking that's the way. That's the way of deliverance. That's the way to freedom. That's the, the way to peace and contentment. That's the way, but it's not the way. But that's what sin deceives us into thinking. So if you've turned inward focusing on self, then sin has gained on you. Whenever our, quote, undistracted devotion, to borrow from 1 Corinthians 7, 35, Whenever our undistracted devotion is interrupted, it is a telltale sign that sin is gaining ground experientially. Whenever we're, our focus is diverted, in other words, it's a telltale sign. If we're focusing too much on ourselves, it's a telltale sign that some part of your life is being dominated, teshuka, by sin itself, because that's the nature of sin. And one thing leads to another, and things begin to snowball, and eventually we become hyper-focused on self. Everything's about self. We wake up, we go to bed at night uh, thinking about self rather than others, rather than Christ. Maybe we stop praying uh, at night. Maybe we stop praying in the morning. I don't know. Maybe we stop reading our Bibles in the morning over our coffee. I don't know. You know all the little telltale signs because... It's not enough time anymore. I, oh, I know I shouldn't have, but I took on that extra project at work. And now I have to get up at 5.30 instead of 6.30. I'm already tired. I don't have time. When that, those things start happening, you're being deceived. You've, been, you've bitten off a piece of um, the influence, if you would, of sin itself. So eventually we become hyper-focused on self. And then we start throwing pity parties. You know, nobody understands even though we are the root of it. We're the root problem. And that's something we saw and noted in the garden scene up here on the board. And I invite you to read the first three chapters of the good book as often as you can. But in the garden scene, with the introduction of sin in the garden comes a pivotal lesson for all of us. If our response to God is ever, ever, anything but 100% submissive, that's what we should have seen from Adam. That's what we should have seen from Ananias years later. If our response to God is ever anything but 100% submissive, but rather self-absorbed in any way, focusing on pain, etc., then we know that sin has gripped us. I know, right? That's what we learn from the garden. If our response to God is ever anything but 100% submissive, then we know that sin has gripped us. Sin diverts our attention from the worship of God, which is truly the only righteous way to live 24-7. A lot of people, I don't think, most Christians I know don't think that way. They think you go to worship on a Sunday. <laughs> or you go to church, and when you're in church, you worship God. No, our worship is 24-7. We should be worshiping the Lord all day, every single day day. Everything we do as unto the Lord, right? Our work, how we go home, how we uh, take responsibilities, how we uh, exercise our spiritual gifts, all of it. All of it is in worship to God. And sin always wants to divert our attention from that thing, from worshiping God. There are telltale signs of this happening even in our own lives. As we've noted in Holy Scripture, Proverbs 19.3, I'll give you the Amplified this evening. The foolishness of man undermines his way, ruining 
whatever he undertakes. Then his heart is resentful and rages against the Lord. For, being a fool, he blames the Lord instead of himself. That's a telltale sign. When the, your first response is always this, you know, the scarecrow, and God happens to be one of the people you're pointing to, you have problems. You, you're stuck. And that tends to be how most people respond under pressure. Um, anyways, the foolishness of man undermines his way, ruining whatever he undertakes. Then his heart is resentful and rages against the Lord. For being a fool, he blames the Lord instead of himself. I love the way Scott stated it on Tuesday. He said, <laughs> this passage, Proverbs 19.3, it doesn't make any sense. But when we are being dominated by sin, does how we act ever make sense? <laughs> Seriously. Does how we, when we're dominated by sin, does how we're acting ever make sense? No, not in light of Scripture. Not in light of whole. It doesn't make any sense to turn around and say, God, it's your fault. But that's exactly what we do. It's never our fault, right? There's always someone else that's responsible. Uh, and just listen to American social standards now, and nobody has to take responsibility for anything anymore. Just, I mean, if you, in, and if there's nobody to point to, let's just create a new word, call it a disorder, and then you can point to a disease. Then it's really not your fault you were born that way. And then, then what? Nobody's responsible for anything? But that's what sin looks like. That's how sin dominates. It undermines truth. It erodes the truth away. Sin ejects us from the sphere of objective thinking. And we land without fail on the lap of subjectivity, which always results in some form of self-absorbed emotionalism. I mean, what's left? If, if your thinking is awry, what's left? What begins uh, taking the rudder? Emotionalism. And you know what? Emotionalism always makes us the fool. There's nothing... Oh, man. I have such a distaste for this now. Um, almost a... Almost an impatience now. And I'm not saying that's godly. I'm just sharing. Emotionalism drives me bananas now. I just can't take it anymore. I, I think it's because there's just too much of it in this world. Like everything is solved. Everything's supposed to be solved nowadays with how we feel. Nothing's ever objectively approached. No solution is ever objectively approached. It's always, well, how, well, how do you feel? We're asking three-year-olds, how do you feel? Kids like, I don't know how I feel. I just wanted some ice cream, so I screamed and threw it. Well, how do you feel? Do you feel this is wrong, little Ricky? I don't give a crap if it's wrong or not. Give me my ice cream, I'll throw another one. Why are we reasoning with people like that? And that just goes on and on and on. And then we treat adults like children, and we promote emotionalism as adults. Well, how do you feel about it? Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says you're an idiot. You're a fool. Stop blaming God for making you that way. Stop blaming everybody else. Stop pointing to disorders that are just manufactured scapegoats because you don't want to take responsibility for your ridiculousness because you're a jackass. Happy Thursday. <laughs> I told you I was bitter. I can't take it. This, this subject of emotionalism makes me crazy. The good news is that we have a way out as God has promised. Go to 1 Corinthians 10.13. 1 Corinthians 10.13. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, hearing someone out. We all get stuck and we all get caught up in emotional times. And, you know, sometimes it's just a vent and it's, it's cool, right? But you can't be um, dominated by that stuff in your life. That can't be the, the, the way. 1 Corinthians 10.13. The great thing about this is that um, in understanding such things, there's always a way out. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, 
will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Isn't that wonderful? It's wonderful. And I think there's hope for, you know, even for idiots like me that get angry with people that are weak and are stuck in emotionalism, because that's really what is showing. I can rest knowing that God will provide some form of escape for this person. So my prayer is always, be humble. Stick with it. Stay humble. Get out of your self-absorption, and let's just move on. Because God will, and God promises to deliver uh, every one of His children. So there's a remedy to our foolishness up here on the board. This came out on Tuesday as a question. Playing the fool. Instead of living in self-pity and blaming God, a la Proverbs 19.3, we can benefit from His mercy by agreeing with God and humbling ourselves before Him. That's the way out. Instead of pointing fingers, the way out is humility. And He loves us and He delivers us uh, without fail. We looked at Luke 18.14, 1 Peter 5, 5-6. James 4, 1 to 10, 1 John 1, 5 to 10. We're going to quickly review some of these passages now. We already know Luke 18, 13 to 14. That's the account of the humble tax collector who beats his chest and goes away justified in humility. We know that one pretty well. 1 Peter 5, 5 to 6 echoes James 4, 6. God gives grace to the humble. We know that pretty well. Again, the point on the board, instead of living in self-pity and blaming God, we can benefit from His mercy by agreeing with Him and humbling ourselves before Him. Uh, let's go to James 4, 1. James 4, 1. <clears throat> James 4, 1. And this is just really James asking his audience to uh, look within themselves. What is the problem? Are you the beast here? What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? So he just kind of casts a net out there. Which of you is willing to be humble? <laughs> In other words, what's the real reason for your misery? And he could be, there could be one person in front of him. There could be a hundred in front of him. Because the, the question remains for one person, as we us as individuals, as well as a church like this. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then here's the key. Submit, therefore, to God. Bingo, right? Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Remember, the devil, Satan, uh, embodies the very nature of sin. So when we talk about sin and the devil, it's almost, they're almost, they're basically analogs or synonymous in many ways. Resist that. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's the faithfulness of God. He never runs away from you. If you draw near to Him, He draws to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This all requires humility, of course. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves. Remember, you have an active role in your own sanctification. You see how it says, humble yourselves. So you have an active role. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you up here on the board. So all that came out. This was a little side note that came out on Tuesday and in my own studies. Playing the fool. <clears throat> we all want to be exalted or promoted, but subtly we want it on our own terms. That's not humility. That's arrogance. We want it on our own terms. As soon as we want it 
on our own terms. There's no more harmony. With God, there's perfect synchronicity. He, if, if we all obeyed God 100%, there wouldn't be any problems. As soon as we want things out of timing, we murder someone for it. But I want 100 grand now. <laughs> you have it. I want it. I'm going to throw you in a ditch. There we go. Mine now. I got 100 grand. If you never had that problem, there's harmony. It's when we want things on our own terms. Very often, I don't know about other countries, but in America, it has a lot to do with money and it has a lot to do with timing. I want it and I want it now, right? Isn't that commercial? Every time I can't help it. It's my money and I want it now. Nobody. We want stuff and we want our own terms. I mean, people do that with, with uh, even relationships. Oh, that's a nice um, that's a nice wife. That's a nice wife you got right there. I need a trophy wife. I think I'm gonna go take her. I'm gonna seduce her away from you with everything I got. Because I don't have a wife, you have a nice wife, she's cool looking and she's pretty hot and you know, this kind of thing. I'm gonna steal her from you. Because I don't have it, you do, I'm gonna take her. Same thing. I want something on my terms. And I want it now. And God's like, what are you doing? You know, and the list goes on and on. There's all kinds of ways we can exercise foolishness. Again, we all want to be exalted or promoted, but subtly, we want it on our own terms. This is, by definition, foolishness. Back to our primary point up here on the board. Playing the fool. Instead of living in self-pity and blaming God, we can benefit from His mercy by agreeing with God and humbling ourselves before Him. Okay, go to 1 John 1.5. 1 John 1.5. I'm going somewhat quickly. These are points of review from Tuesday. He's been um, pretty much wailing on me this past month or so, telling me to just slow down and take a breather. Like, just stop. Stop pushing the envelope in every aspect of your life. Relax for a moment. You know? Well, you don't have to always be that, like, aggressive in everything. It doesn't, it sounds heroic, but it's stupid. Anyways, I'm just sharing. First John 1 John 1.5 This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And his word is not in us. Uh, I personally believe that that whole passage is a salvation issue. But the principle is there. The idea is to agree. Remember homo legeo. To agree with God about our sins. It's a pattern that's set at salvation. It's a pattern that's set at salvation. And has everything to do with humility. You're not going to confess sin if you have no humility towards it. That's why an arrogant person is never saved. A humble person is the one who God saves. There has to be some moment of humility for salvation. That's why it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Anyways, as we've studied in great detail in the past, confession isn't for God's sake other than to His glory. It's for yours. Why does the Bible tell us to examine ourselves, confess our sins, repent, all these things? It's for your sake. You think God doesn't know about your sins? Of course He does. This is about you. Confession is for you. As you'll see this weekend, the Spirit inspired me to write another blog about our series, The Deceitfulness of Sin. And just as a side note on that, you have to begin asking yourselves, if not already, when the Spirit comes at us double-barreled, pulpit and blogs, the topic must be really important. 
Maybe just maybe it has something to do with the following question up here on the board. This big question. How do even well-intentioned believers get caught up in subjectivity, partiality, and the deceitfulness of sin? I mean, how do we get to the point where we don't even confess sin because we're numb to it or our conscience is beginning to be seared by it? That kind of a thing. Because the new norm is some sinful lifestyle. And then we take that next ratcheted step up and that becomes our new baseline and everything below it is built on sin and etc etc how does that even happen that's the big question on the table well what i said in this blog that's coming up is what is said in proverbs 4 13 to 15 i'll give you the english or the english standard version keep hold of instruction do not let go guard her for she is your life do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. It's very, very simple. And this is what the, what the blog is all about. It's really very, very simple. Um, just don't ever take that first step. Don't. If the temptation's over there and God says, you see that over there? That's a real temptation. You go like this. You don't go and you rub a neck a little closer, you know what I'm saying? And you're like me, you're almost 50 now, i got bad eyesight, so i got to take two steps closer. And then I want to like, oh man, it's got a, a, a smell. I've got, I can, I got to get a better smell. Get a little closer. Then of course I'm that close, I might as well touch it, right? Next thing i got it in my hand, whatever it is, and I'm playing with it, I'm juggling with it. It says don't even, don't even take the first step in the direction of that thing. That's what the Bible says. That's how you become deceived. If you never take the first step, you never become a victim of it. You're never bound up in it. You're never wound up in it. That is what the Spirit's been saying from this pulpit, in part. Don't take the first step. The better your radar, the better off you are, in other words. If things show up on your radar sooner because you've got more of this in your soul, the better off you are. The more light in front of you. You, know, you can see the potholes. You can see the, the danger from a distance. So you'll enjoy the blog for those of you that read it. This week's blog is titled Walking on Thin Ice. You can imagine what that will read like. In any case, the Spirit is exhorting you through this vessel in a really big way. I've already suggested that this series is only slightly behind the Gospel Reload series in terms of critical understanding. I mean it. The most important series ever to come from this pulpit was what I call the Gospel Reload. Whatever. Um, this is very close. The deceitfulness of sin is right behind it. Right behind it. My job is to teach believers. That's my primary role. My primary role is to teach believers. If someone comes in here and gets saved, that's cool. But this church exists for you believers. That's my role, and I get it, and I understand it. So it makes sense to me that the deceitfulness of sin is right behind the gospel reload. Because first, we're evangelists. That's what we're getting trained up for. That's what we're being built up for, to go out and evangelize. Um, <clears throat> but we also have to make sure that we're good and stable evangelists, that our lives don't implode upon ourselves, that we not get stuck and ensnared in the deceitfulness of sin. And so it makes a whole lot of sense to a shepherd that deceitfulness of sin has all this emphasis on it. With that said, we'll press on. Here's our basic working definition of sin. Uh, you don't have to be a theologian, obviously. I can give you a book if you want it. This thick on, you know, sin, harmatia, and all the other words. And you get all freaky and dorky over it. But honestly, this is it. This is it. God never said you had to be a theologian to have faith. Matter of fact, I would argue that some people without degree dot dots and this behind their names 
are actually more faithful than some that do. Probably many that do. Anyways, sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. That's what sin is. God says, I want it this way. We do something else. That's sin. Any departure from that, from God's will, is sin. Easiest way to remember it. Let's continue where we left. And that, by the way, that includes your thinking. <laughs> like right now. Does God want you thinking about your cat? No, I'm for real. While you're sitting here? No, he doesn't. Does he want you worrying about your job? No, he really doesn't. Does he want you worried about your stupid relationships? No, he doesn't. Your financial situation really doesn't. You understand what I'm saying? Everything is under the scrutiny of that one simple statement. What does God want you doing right now in your life? Although it's a small statement, it's big. It covers everything. It's like love, the law of love. Well, should I do this or shouldn't? I don't know. Is it a show of love? Are you loving that person when you do that thing? Are you bringing glory to God? Are you conforming to God's will? Not rocket science. I mean, and if you don't do those things, it's sin. Now, let's continue where we left off on Sunday, seeing how the influence of sin compares to the primitive def- description of the father of lies, that is Satan. Go to Acts 5, verse 1. Acts 5, 1. So you see this close relationship between Satan and sin itself in the Bible, throughout the Bible. Acts 5.1, but a man, a man, and I alluded to this passage earlier, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why is Satan filled, pleroo, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And again, it was very natural for Ananias to lie, because that's what sin does. It lies. Sin is a natural deceiver. And as the passage depicts Uh, When we believe sins lies, things get really bad for us. Look at verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. Now, obviously, the Lord God was making an example of Ananias because I'm sure there's a lot of people hearing my voice, maybe even right now, but definitely probably in the future, over the course of the length of this, or the survival of this particular message, People have sold things and not paid their taxes. And the Word of God says, pay your taxes. So even though man doesn't know it, you're not lying and cheating man, you're lying and cheating God. And all of you are still alive. <laughs> what, was that funny? Everybody's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, that was years ago. I don't do that anymore. Well, you're still alive, all right? So for whatever reason... He chose not to make an example of you, but Ananias, he did. So, nonetheless, you see that Peter, the one whom Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, actually judged righteously here? So that puts judging uh, back on the table, that it's not sinful to judge rightly. Matter of fact, it's a righteous thing to do. That's another aspect that we spent probably the first five lessons on. Remember, each lesson started off with judging. Why? Because that's a real problem. It's a thorn. We've been deceived by sin, thinking, oh, you can't ever judge. That's a lie. Peter just did it. And he did it righteously. Do you see that he attributes Ananias' lie, the deceitfulness, to Satan himself? Why is that? Well, what does Holy Scripture have to say about this? Go to John 8.44. John 8.44. Peter doesn't have any problem with this. 
Jesus had no problem telling Peter, get behind me, Satan. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Again, Peter attributes Ananias' sin to Satan because Satan is the father of lies. In other words, Satan personifies sin, embodies it, its very nature. That's why Jesus said what he said to Peter up here on the board, Matthew 16, 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You are not setting your minds uh, on God's interests, but man's. That's part of the deceitfulness of sin. Get your mind distracted. Divert your attention away from the will of God. Because that's what sin is at a baseline definition. Get yourself away from the will of God, you're sinning. Now you're under the control of the dominion of sin itself. And that's what sin wants. And that's what Jesus called out. Get behind me. And lo and behold, what we see here is a perfect example of sin looking good on the outside. I mean, did I mean, remember, I forget the passage, um, John 10 maybe, um, where he says, do you love me, Peter? He's like, you know I love you. And he got kind of mad, remember? Like three times the whole time. So we know that Peter loved the Lord. So we know that Peter being, you know, that guy, that guy that would always stand up, probably would be the first one to, you know, you know, like the bouncer of the group, so to speak. He would, was trying to protect the Lord. In his mind, he was protecting the Lord. He wasn't thinking correctly. He was being deceived. Um, and Jesus laid it on him. Your mind is not my, where my mind is. Your will is not my will. You're trying, to, you're trying to thwart what I have to do. So get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on, not on God's interest, but man's. And so that's a good illustration for all of us. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean. You know exact, you know, but I love my kids. That's why I spoil them. I love my kids. That's why it's hard for me not to enable them. I love my kids. Don't tell me I can't do this thing for my kid. It's the same thing. It's that love. It's not, no one's going to accuse you of not loving your child. But if it's not the will of God, then it's no good. So it goes to show that even that kind of a dynamic in life, sin's not always bad, in other words. Sin's not always, you know, tsh, I, I hit somebody or I cut some, you know, I did something aggressive. Sin's not always that way. A lot of times, especially when you're talking about the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, the stuff that undermines, the insidiousness of it, then you get into misplaced love, misappropriated affections, emotionalism. That's what the Spirit's been getting at with this series. It's pretty easy to see. You know, if I come out of the driveway barrel, barrel butting out of the driveway, <laughs> right, and I run into someone, right, I'm wrong. Everybody's like, oh, you sinner, right? Oh, the past, I'll be in the headlines in Taunton Daily Gazette. Pastor rams somebody, some old lady, right? Sinner. Pastor is sinner. Yeah, that's right, right. But if I do something that looks good on the outside, if I get all mightily religious from North Christian Church, I start doing, you know, religious things from the church that God cannot stand, everybody praises me. Which one's worse? Ah, which one's more undermining? Which one's more difficult to identify? Which one's harder to root out? It's the second one. And that's what we see with Peter. Peter loved the Lord, but he called him Satan. Ouch. So it's like a, you know, I hope you see it clearly. Jesus is literally applying the definition of sin to that situation when he said, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. That's literally applying the definition of sin. Jesus was essentially saying to Peter, you are acting in your sin nature, which is opposed to God, like the father of lies himself, Satan. Did Peter understand this at the time? 
Probably not. I mean, he was doing it. Peter, like all of us, needed to be jolted back to divine viewpoint. He needed to have something pointed out. And I'd be willing to bet, get behind me, Satan, was the last thing Peter expected to hear. Especially since he was presuming he was protecting Jesus. I have my notes here, really bold letters. Never assume. Always, always, always consult the one thing that can set you free, the word of truth. Never assume. I've had a good couple of conversations this afternoon about false assumptions, about this or that. If something's not in the Bible, you can't assume it. Even if you really want it to be true, you can't assume it. Always, always, always consult the one thing where you can find truth, and that is the Word of God, and the truth sets you free. All right. Because Peter, obviously, was in bondage at the time, and Jesus was trying to set him free. Same thing for us. All right, we need to gather ourselves a little bit here. I only got about 10 minutes left. Um, let's grab a few passages that will help with this particularly on the manifestation of sin in man, and we call that the depravity of man, of course. Um, we are totally depraved. Go to Romans one twenty-eight. That is the manifestation of sin in man. It's the expression of the condition of sinful man. We're depraved. Romans one twenty-eight. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Gave them over from paradidomi, up here on the board, to hand over, pledge, hand down, deliver, commit, commend, betray, abandon, for example, to deliver over with a sense of close personal involvement. So he gave them over to their natural instincts, in other words, to their depraved mind, to their sinfulness. So if that's what you really want, here you go. I gave you a free will. If that's what you really want, you can have it. So he gave them over. The resounding question is, to what? To what? The answer is something that, by implication, already exists in every man, a depraved mind. He gave them over to a depraved mind. And what does that look like exactly? Oh, it's bad. It's ugly. Romans 1.29, being filled, controlled by sin, in other words, very much akin to why has Satan filled your heart? Very much antagonistic to being filled with the Spirit. The opposite, if you would. Here we have, have individuals filled. Remember, plural means um, influenced, you know, wind in your sails type thing being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. That means they're even creative. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That's the unbridled flesh. <laughs> when God says, all right, I'm going to let you go. Like, I'm going to restrain you, I'm going to restrain... Okay, I'll just let you go. This is what it looks like. That's how ugly the human flesh is when it's controlled by sin, when God says, okay, I'm just going to let you go. I'm going to hand you over. And if we read uh, Romans 9, that's what the, the potter does with some clay. He used some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. And the ones he used for dishonorable use, he says, I'm going to use them, I'm going to hold them up as like a proverb. I'm going to hold them up and to show you. This is what it looks like when I hand somebody over. If I let somebody rip, you know, like, let her rip. <laughs> You're a lost cow. Go for it. He, you notice that he records it? It's not, this isn't like a marketing campaign, right? Where it's only, you know, a glossy. I'm only going to put the glossies up, you know. All the, you know, all the dregs I'm going to, like, not record? No. He records all the awful things, too, for our edification. 
to show you the end result. The end result of the depravity and the sinfulness of man. And he holds those things up in, in terms of uh, Holy Scripture for our edification. And look what we just read. I mean, that's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderous, haters of God. It's unbelievable. Insolent, arrogant, inventors of evil. <laughs> that means they have resources. Do you understand? That means they sit around inventing things. They're not even just passive. They're active. They're aggressive. Remember Tashuka? Have you ever seen a pit bull pin a dog or, or an aggressive dog pin a, a weak one? It's, it's ugly. It's ugly. It wants to, it's aggressive. That's sin. Sin doesn't sit back. It invents all kinds of stuff. Lies through its teeth, manipulates, slanders. Uh, it's just awful. It's ugly. Like truly, truly ugly. And I like the last two words, unloving and unmerciful, because those are completely antagonistic to God and to Jesus Christ. Verse 32, And although they know the ordinance of God, in other words, they know better, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They parade around in their arrogance. They wear their arrogance out in the open, in other words. That's what happens. That's the picture when God says, okay, I'm going to hand you over. And let's just, let's all sit back in the great theatron and see what sin does. So let's see how it manifests itself. Ooh! It's unbelievably horrible and ugly. How about another passage that speaks to the depravity of man? Go to 1 Timothy 6, 3. 1 Timothy 6, 3. <clears throat> So that kind of helps us with the aggressiveness, if you would. Even though it's covert, it's insidious, uh, it's undermining, it hides out, you've got to understand it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. It, you know, it, it may look good, it may present itself to you even as something good, but the aggression is behind it, right? Uh, smooth as butter, but it's hard as war. Um, that's the way sin works, and that's... Satan's the embodiment of it, so that's the way he's always worked. He's a serpent, and sin is the same way. 1 Timothy 6.3, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, that's you, Sabiah, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Sounds like Romans 1 all over again, at least a component of it. Constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Who suppose, in other words, they want to make godliness their own slave. They like the idea of godliness. They don't want it. They want to do it in their own way. So it always comes with all this baggage from verses um, from verse 4 there and a bit of 5. But constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth, deprived of the truth, excuse me, who, suppo who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Way back in verse 3, Paul references the doctrine conforming to godliness, that is righteousness, a.k.a. otherwise known as conformance to the will of God. So depravity, as we just noted, opposes the will of God as it is the description of sin's effect on mankind. One more passage on depravity. Go to 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. 2 Timothy 3, 1. So we're seeing, we're just being reminded of the aggressiveness, if you would, the, um, the amplitude behind um, sin that we ought not be fooled. You know, sin's not some, oh, shucks, you know, oops, I tricked you. No, it's extremely aggressive. 
exceptional. What's more irritating to you? Um, active aggressiveness or passive aggressiveness? Passive, right? Oh, I can't stand it. It's a lot of work to be passive aggressive. It's a lot of work to be passive aggressive. But sin has no problem with that. No problem. Matter of fact, it functions very well in that capacity, like a lot of people do. Because when you're passive aggressive, it goes unnoticed. It's kind of slinking around in the shadows, right? But that doesn't mean that it's not all the more aggressive, that the amplitude behind the aggressiveness um, isn't there. In fact, it could be there in spades. And Satan just wants you to focus on, you know, the uh, active aggressiveness. Like, oh, you offended me. Oh, that's an overt sin. Oh, that's an overt sin. While he completely undermines you with this wellspring of passive aggressiveness. That's what sin does. And that's what we're focusing on. Verse 3, 1. 2 Timothy 3, 1. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, reviled. Oh man, I get sick reading these things. Revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving. There's that again. Irreconcilable, malicious gossips. There's that again. Remember we saw slander. Without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding, holding. Remember like the other guys, depending or supposing that godliness was something to be gained as a little side pocket profit. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women. I just described that whole scenario. They don't come in through the front door. They come in through the back door. They don't come in when the husband's home. They come in when the weaker vessel's alone by herself and worn down. Because that's what sin does. It's gross. It has no um, scruples. It's the wolf that goes after the, you know, the, the injured baby sheep. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't go after the kingpin. It goes after the little one. That's, that's the way sin is. It's gross. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. In other words, it'll take advantage every chance it gets of weakness always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind. You see it again, depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. And I think I'll end here. Just one more note up here on the board on that verse, verse 8, men of depraved mind. They are those who oppose the truth because that's what depravity is. That's what sin does. Remember the basic definition of sin is anything opposed to the will of God. So men of depraved mind, they are the ones who oppose the truth. Of course, in context, we are considering this as a habit because you know and I know we all have depraved minds once in a while. Oh, Scott, would you like to share? <laughs> Scott's like, hmm. <laughs> You're the only honest one in the audience, apparently. Anyways, Todd's trying to join in back there. It's too late. <laughs> in context, we are considering this as a habit, not when a believer fails and sins. The context here is to establish that sin opposes truth by nature. Remember, we are born children of wrath. So by nature, we are born that way. And if we stay that way, we become men of depraved mind. And this is it. And then we become a proverb. Nonetheless, we can still act that way, as Paul said. Can we not still act as carnal men? We sure can. Again, men of depraved mind, we're just amplifying. Take that with you to Sunday. We're just amplifying this evening um, the, I would say, the amplitude of sin itself that the deceitfulness of sin, it's not always light and slippery. That's the facade. That's the way it hides. 
it only comes across as something slight. Oh, you know, no big deal. Just take the first step. It's no big deal. Take that next step. Next thing you know, you take the next step. It's not a big deal. That's what sin wants to do. The whole time, the heart is war, you see. It's behind just getting you going in that direction, getting you on that vector with some momentum to lead you away from the way, the truth, and the life, and spending time and fellowshipping with Him. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of studying your word here this evening. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.